Christ gives us many reasons as to why He came. He makes statements. They all lead to the same conclusion. But let me mention some of the things which Jesus said about His purpose in coming. He says, it's recorded in both Matthew and Mark, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. In the Gospel of Luke, He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In John's Gospel, we read in the 10th chapter, He says, I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. He says something very personal to us who know Him. In the 6th chapter, He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I will certainly not drive away. For I have come down out of heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, listen carefully, that I lose nothing that He has given to me. That would include you and me if we know Jesus Christ. We only come to the Father by virtue of the Father's choosing to give us to Jesus. And once we're in the possession of Jesus, Jesus says, it is the will of the Father that none of us be lost. What an exciting thought. In the book of John, again, the 14th chapter, Thomas asked Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed before his death for our salvation. He said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He goes on to say, listen carefully. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip responded by saying, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus replied, saying these words, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Among other reasons that Jesus came is to show us the Father. There is a longing in the heart of every person on the globe even when they don't know the exact reason for the longing to know God and to know Him as a Father. We read just a few moments ago from the Gospel of Luke, we're going to look at that in some detail in just a moment, about the matter of the fatherhood of God. We know who the Father is because we have seen Jesus, who is the perfect reflection. He's the one who gives us a clear picture of who God is. In one of his novels, Ernest Hemingway tells the story of the estrangement between a father and son in Spain. And after some years of separation and no communication between father and son, the father has a change of heart and he tries to find his son. His son's name is Paco. And he searches and he searches without any positive effect. Then he strikes upon the idea, maybe if I put an ad in the El Liberal 
which was the leading paper in Spain in that day, ad saying these words, Paco, meet me at noon on Tuesday at the Hotel Montana. All is forgiven, Papa. Tuesday came, high noon. This estranged father found himself at the plaza in front of the Hotel Montana, and 800 young men were there, all named Paco, and all estranged from their father. The story of the Bible is a story of God coming in the person of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep, in order to bring estranged people, we, whose sins, the Bible says, has separated us from God. And our sins make it impossible to God for God to look upon us. doesn't mean He doesn't know our existence. He knows us. But we can't have a relationship with Him because the Bible says God has such pure eyes, He cannot look on sin. What that means simply is He cannot have a relationship with people who are sinners. That's a problem for God. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. And God solved that problem for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who Himself is not simply fully human, but He too is fully God, on a par with God Himself. So let's look together in this passage of Scripture in the book of Luke, chapter 15. If you've lost your place, I invite you to turn there again. And see who Jesus shows us who the Father is. There are three things that I see in the passage. There are probably more that you can think of. I'm going to mention them, and then we're going to come back and look at each one of them in some detail. First of all, Father God is a generous God. The second thing we're going to see is Father God is a gracious God. And finally, we'll spend some time looking at the reality that Father God is a gregarious God. Let's begin with the first statement. Father God is a generous God. Now, is there any evidence in the Old Testament that God is a generous God? There's a lot of misconception about the God of the Old Testament. People like to say, well, that God is not the God of the New Testament. Such a statement is an erroneous statement. People who make such a statement have not carefully read the Old Testament. Because God is portrayed correctly as a generous God. For instance, from the beginning, God said, let us make man in our own image. And of course, He pluralizes the pronoun Let us, meaning he's talking in the council of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, let us make man in our own image. And what did he give man to do? He gave man dominion over one section of the earth? Not. He gave man dominion, one man, dominion over the entire earth. I'd say that's generosity, wouldn't you? And then when God made a covenant with Abram, whom we came to know and do know him today as Abraham, and 
part of the promise he made to him was that he would give him Canaan, the promised land. And God delivered on that promise to Abraham. And he gave the promise. And we could look at several other passages in the Old Testament which indicate clearly that our God, the Father God, who is introduced to us in the Old Testament is indeed, He is surely a generous God. The New Testament declares the same. In Philippians 4.19, the Bible says, My God shall supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. In the book of Ephesians, the Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I think that's comprehensive. That's a true blessing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, this is what Paul writes about Jesus. Though He was rich... Now let's stop just a moment. Where was Jesus before He became a man? He was in heaven. He had the glory of God in heaven. And it was the plan of He and the Father and the Spirit that He would come to be the Savior of mankind. Though He was rich, He became poor so that you, meaning we who know Him, through His poverty might become rich. We are incredibly wealthy in Christ. There's nothing you or I will ever need to live a full and meaningful life apart from the resident presiding Christ in our lives. Well, let's turn our attention to our passage for just a moment. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. And Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father... Give me, and let me stop here just a moment. This is a command. Imagine this. It's a command from a son to a father. And this is the significance of this command. He's saying, give me, I demand it of you, and you must do more than just try to give it to me. That's the background of understanding this command. When you look at it carefully as it relates to the grammar of that command. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Let me pause here just a moment. He does not say, give me my inheritance. And if you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17 in the Old Testament, what you would discover is, in the law of God, the elder son, firstborn son, would get two-thirds of the estate when the father died. And the secondborn would get one-third of the estate. In this particular story, the younger is the one who comes to his dad and says, I demand that you give to me the share of the estate that falls to me. Notice he does not say, give me my inheritance. Here's why. Because according to Jewish law, an inheritance carried with it a responsibility. And this young man did not have any interest in becoming any more responsible than he was. And look at the last sentence in verse 12. And he, that would be the father, divided his wealth between them. I don't think it's necessary for me to point out the correlation between the father in this story and God the Father. 
The father in this story is representative of God the Father, Father God. And in this case, what does the father do? We might call him the prodigal father, actually. What does he do? He does what he's asked to do. And he didn't simply give part of the wealth away. He gave it all away. Remember, there's an elder brother in this story. And the elder brother got his two-thirds. The father was perfectly equal in his treatment of his children. And our father is like that, too. The father who Jesus has shown us, the father of all People who know Christ, He treats us equally. Now, if you will glance down the text to the 31st verse, where the father in the story is speaking to his son who'd been a good boy all his life. He hung close to home. He was not a highly demanding person. But look at what the father says to him upon the return of his brother, who had gone away, he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. He was complaining that his father hadn't really met his needs like he was meeting his little brother's needs. There was jealousy there, and some anger too, for sure. But what we see is the father is a generous father God, isn't he? He's generous. This text also tells us that father God is a gracious God. Let's go back to verse 13. After this younger son had received his share of the estate, look at what the text says. And not many days later, this boy didn't waste any time, did he? If you know anything about Near Eastern culture, even to this day, there is a lot of haggling that goes on when you have goods and you're wanting to convert them into cash. I mean, it takes like weeks, if not months, many times, to reach an agreement about property that is being exchanged for money. But this boy, he was in such a hurry to get out of Dodge that he didn't get the best bang for his buck, we might say, in this transaction that he converted all of the estate into money. The text goes on to say, The younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. The nature of that loose living is mentioned by the brother himself. If you will look at verse 30, the brother says this to the father, the elder brother, about the younger brother. When this son of yours came... Who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. So he had really wasted his life on fast living with many women, none of whom he was ready to commit himself to. He partied hardy for sure, and it was not a good thing for him to do, as we're going to see if we look a little further here. He squandered his estate. That word squandered is a word which is used to describe the scattering of seed when someone was planting. It was used of scattering the enemy in victory on the battlefield. It was used to describe a flock of sheep which had been scattered. Have you ever seen a depiction of that where sheep are very skittish and they're scared and they just scatter? That's the idea 
conveyed in this idea of squandering. And it was with loose living. The word translated loose living means wild living, spendthrift living. As my mother used to tell me when I was a boy, she'd say, Mike, that money is burning a hole in your pocket. What was she telling me? Well, I got money and it was no time until I had none left. No matter how much it was, I wanted to spend it. That was the way this young man was. Aristotle, Greek philosopher, made this statement about prodigals. He says, a prodigal is one who has a single evil quality, wasting his substance. If this young man's story had been written up in a newspaper, if they had had newspapers at this time, the introduction might have said something like this, country boy goes to the big city and wastes his money trying to establish a reputation as a generous man. He tries to buy his friends. didn't work out well for this man. Look at verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. His need was something that he brought upon himself. And it was a circumstance that was necessary for God to permit in his life. It was tied, certainly, to a famine which came simultaneous to his wasting of all the money that he had gotten from his share of the estate. He needed that to get his attention. Look at verse 15. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, this is about the lowest job, if not the lowest, that a person who was a son of Abraham would be given. There was a rabbinical saying contemporary to the time of Jesus that went like this, Cursed be the man who would feed swine. He was in the state of being cursed by his own choices. That's what sin does to us. Sin not only alienates us from God, but in alienating us from God, it results in our own demise, where we are miserable. And our misery can be traced in most cases, if not all cases, that inner restlessness which we have, a sense of knowing there's more than what I'm experiencing in life, it can be traced to our rejection of the authority of God the Father in our lives. Look at verse 16. And he was longing to fill his stomach, the idea of being one who was longing. It never left his mind. If you've ever been really hungry, you know what this is saying. He was wanting to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. We know these would have been carob pods. Usually the swine would eat the beans in the pods, but there were no beans. Why? Because the famine was so severe that people were resorting to eat carob beans themselves. It was a terrible famine. And this man was simply hoping that he would get hold of some of the carob pods that the pigs were eating. But no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. This man came to his senses. It's been suggested that he had a sort of insanity. And quite frankly, 
We are off center for sure when we do not recognize God in His rightful place in our lives as our Father. And the only way to know Him in that regard is through Jesus. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received Christ, to those He gave the right to become children of God. Not everybody's a child of God. That's a misconception. Only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone, who, remember, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He goes on as he's rehearsing what he might say if he goes back to his Father. He says, I will get up and go to my Father and will say to Him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your Son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. While he was a long way off, how would the father have seen him a long way off? This would suggest the standing of this man in the community. He had an estate. And the estate was surrounded by a wall. It was not a short wall. It was a high wall. It had a parapet around it where people could walk around and you could get a panoramic view of the area surrounding the estate. And I would imagine that more than one time every day, this father walked the parapet hoping that he would see the sun. And then one day he saw someone coming in the distance like he had seen so many before. But there was something about this man's way of walking that tipped him off that it was his son. When this son had left, he was well clothed. He had shoes on his feet. But this one was coming back in tatters and he was barefooted. And the text tells us he saw him and immediately, what did he have? He felt compassion. He had grace for him. And he ran. This was something that would never have occurred in a person's life who had the standing this father had were it not for great compassion on the part of that individual. He ran toward him. No man of any stature in the community would have run toward anyone in public. No one over the age of 30, according to rabbinical law, was to run in public. And we can see in our mind's eye, this man, we don't know how old he was, probably in his 50s, and he grabs the hem of his robe, he pulls it up, tucks it under his girdle, if you will, that he had to do such things, and he makes a beeline for his son. I thought about myself in this case. If I were to try to run, it wouldn't look like running anymore. You know what I mean? It may not even resemble a trot, maybe just a fast walk. But this guy probably just had a a surge of energy at the thought that his son was coming. And what does he do? He embraces him. He doesn't wait for the son to say anything by way of apology. He embraces him. And what does he do? He kisses him. Just like he did when he was a little boy. He held him. 
He was so delighted to have his son back. Do you know that's the heart of God the Father? He's delighted to have you when you come to him. Let's look again at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and he had. And in your sight, and he had. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And really, from a human perspective, he was right. He was not worthy to be called a son, was he, anymore? But the father said to his slaves, he didn't let him get to the last part. What did he rehearse? If you look back up at the last part of verse 19, what had he had in mind that he would say, make me as one of your hired men. He doesn't even let the words get out of his mouth because he would have nothing to do with that. This is his son who had been lost and now has been found. And he speaks to his slaves. He says, quickly, bring out the best robe. There was one robe that was known as being the best robe in the household. Undoubtedly, it belonged to the father himself. He says, bring out his best robe. Put it on him. Now, remember, he was in tatters. His clothing stunk, probably. It was filthy. It was anything but proper dress for a young man of his stature and upbringing. He says, put it on and put a ring on his hand. You know what the ring was symbolic of? It was symbolic. It was the signet ring of the father that he would use as he was sending documents out to authorize and authenticate the document. He would press it into warm wax to seal any document that he sent out. And in giving that boy the ring, what was he saying? You have the authority of being my son. Do you know that's what the Lord does for you and me? When we came to Jesus Christ, do you know what he did? In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and then again in chapter 4, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible says that... He sealed us with the Holy Spirit of God. Came to live in us by the Holy Spirit. He authenticates us. He gives us the authority to be His children. To have all that pertains to being a child of God. Unbelievable. And He says, and put sandals on His feet. Slaves didn't have shoes. This boy was barefooted when he came home. He said, put some sandals on this boy's feet. He's to be properly dressed. Do you know that's the Lord's way of looking at you if you're in Christ? He wants you to come home. If you're not in Christ or you've been in Christ and you've wandered away, what He's wanting is He's inviting you today on this Christmas Eve to come to Him like this young man did. He goes on in verse 23 and says, And bring the fattened calf, kill it. And let us eat and be merry. The fattened calf was one was, which was kept for such occasions as this. Few and far between were such occasions. But the fattened calf was prepared for a moment like this. Meat was not common in the diet of people in that day. It was only for special occasions that it was provided. The Bible says this about our God. He is a gracious God. If you have your Bible, I want to ask you to turn to a couple of places. The book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, the 36th chapter. Exodus chapter 36.
It's actually 34, Exodus 34. And we're going to look at verses 6 and 7, which gives us evidence that the Old Testament God is the same God in the New Testament. No doubt about it. He's a gracious God. Look at verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you sense the graciousness of God, slow to anger? He's like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. But his nature is not only a nature of love, he also is a holy God. In the beginning when he created man, man was without sin. Adam and Eve had no sin. And as we've seen, our sin separates us from God. And in his love, the father is one who's waiting to hear words from our mouths like the father in the parable heard from his son's mouth. I have sinned against heaven and against you. We must understand there has to be a repentant heart in our heart that we recognize that we need forgiveness. And the idea of the fattened calf in this story, there are some people who argue that this is not a full gospel because it has nothing to say about the payment of our sin. The fattened calf was known as the calf of the threshold. And when someone had been away, like this boy had been away for so long and suddenly showed up, then the calf was slaughtered, the blood was let, and that was to pay for the sins that would have been committed probably in his absence. And then the food would have followed in a great banquet. Now go to Ezekiel for a moment. Ezekiel is over toward the New Testament. And listen carefully to these words. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verses 30 through 32. This is the word of God to the people of Israel. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Do you know sin is our ruin? St. Augustine said this, and he was reflecting on his own life. He was a hellraiser deluxe before he met Christ. And he said this in reflection upon his own conversion to Christ his own experience of a prodigal come to God. He said, You formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We need to understand this. And it requires our turning from sin. That's what repentance means. Turning away. Look at verse 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's the Father heart of God. He is a gracious God. His compassion is long-suffering. He wants us to know Him. He's 
pleading for us to come home to him and to trust him, just like this young man came home and trusted him. Well, there's one more characteristic of God, Father God. What are the first two we've looked at? He is a generous Father, and He is a gracious Father. He's made provision for our salvation, just like the Father in the parable had the fattened calf to pay for the sin of the Son who had come home. Well, He's a gregarious God, too. He loves a party. And that may come as a surprise to some of you. Most of us party for escapism. But the parties that God throws are parties that are the result of His liberating people from their sin. In the 15th chapter, there are two parables which precede this. We're not going to read them. You can read them for yourself. This is the climactic one, of course, the better known Best known, rather, of the three. But let's look at verse 7 of Luke 15. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That almost makes me want to go out and go out in the far country. I don't know about you. But nevertheless, there's great joy in heaven, and the Lord is leading. The celebration, you can be sure of that, because He loves us so much, beyond what we could ever imagine. And our sin separates us from the love of God. The Bible says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons and daughters of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Christ came. This is the Christmas story. So He could bestow that love upon us. Well, let's look at the gregarious nature of the Father as revealed in this story. And let's turn to verses 23, the second part of Luke 15, 23. After he tells his servants to get the fattened calf and sacrifice it, he says, Let us eat and be merry, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost. And he has been found. And they began to be merry. There's great joys we've seen in heaven and in the body of Christ. Isn't it joyful when we see someone who does not know Jesus Christ turn his or her life over to Christ and become a child of God? There's nothing like it, actually. I've discussed this on more than one occasion with individuals when I'm talking about the benefit of being an agent of the gospel where we tell people about Jesus and how they can be saved and forgiven and become a child of God. I say it's like being born again again is the way I have sensed it. Maybe your experience has been different from mine. Well, let's look at verse 25 for a moment. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. That sounds like a party, doesn't it? And God loves it. He's gregarious. He loves being with people. He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Understand, this older brother knew exactly what the killing of the fattened calf was reserved for to honor someone. And he became angry. 
and was not willing to go in. He was a stick in the mud. He represents the prodigal. We know about the prodigal. He, he represents the prudes in the church of Jesus Christ. They can't have any fun, period. But he says, the scripture says, he was not willing to go in and his father came out. Know what, notice what the father's doing. He is begging this boy to come in. You know, the Lord is begging some of you who have never wandered away from the Lord. And I'm not recommending that you wander away, okay? Who've never wandered away from the Lord. You may have come to Christ as a child. And you may have walked the straight and narrow all these years. And if so, there's the possibility, if not the probability, that you're like this elder brother. And the Father is begging you to come in to the party that's being thrown in the kingdom of God. Verse 29 says, But he answered and said to his father, Look, he's, he's mad, I almost said something else. For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a goat, a kid, baby goat, that I might be married with my friends. He didn't care about being married with his dad, did he? Or his brother. He wanted a party that was centered on himself. He was just as much a sinner as the prodigal. Religious sin is probably the worst sin that anyone can commit. Jesus had his biggest beef with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees in particular. Verse 30, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured, well, that's a strong word, and that is an accurate term, your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, the translation that was read earlier is the updated New American Standard Version, says, my son, I'm sorry that it translated that way because the word child here is used. It's like my little boy, my nino. That's what he's saying. You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. You notice what the Lord wants from you and me? It's here. It's almost something we just skip over and don't even notice. When Jesus called out of his disciples 12 men to be his apostles, This is recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. He says, I called you that you might be with me. Do you know what a privilege it is to be with the God of the universe? Can you imagine? He invites you and me today and the next day and forever to be with Him. In your presence, the Bible says, as David writes to God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. There is no joy anywhere else in fullness except in the presence of God. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You want some pleasure that lasts? Then come to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And therein lies what you long for in the deepest part of your heart. The restlessness. In the book of Nehemiah, In the 8th chapter, there's a famous sentence that you probably have memorized, some of you. It says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I like that. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you know the Lord has great joy? We've seen it, haven't we? 
great joy. It's His joy. And it is conveyed to us when we come into the party, as it were. When we enjoy our relationship with God the Father, as this young man did, and the older brother refused to do. We don't know the sequel to the story, whether this young man, even though he was older than the other man, maybe he came in. I hope he did. And then in Psalm 51.12, after David has come clean about his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband, by the king to cover up his sin of adultery. He comes clean and among his petitions he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's no joy like the joy of knowing God through Jesus Christ. And that's what God calls us to. Perhaps you've noticed in the Old Testament, going back to the Old Testament God, is He different from the New Testament God? In the Old Testament, there are several festivals that are given to the people of Israel to be celebrated annually, and three of them were to be celebrated every year. And every one of those was accompanied by feasts and, if you will, parties rejoicing over their relationship to God, their freedom that they had from concern about rejection by God. Verse 32 says, But we had to be merry and rejoice. You can't help it. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Let me suggest some things for you and me to ponder about this story. I'll begin with a quotation from Simone Veil. She writes, It is to the prodigals that the memory of their father's house comes back. Why? They've been away. Right? And then she says, If the son had lived economically, he would never have thought of returning. Thank God for prodigality on his part. So he got to the place where he knew he needed the Lord. He humbly accepts restoration knowing that he is totally unworthy. That's the beginning point for you and me. We confess our sin to the Lord, we repent of our sin, we turn away, and we humbly accept His forgiveness and restoration. Here's a third thing. Here's a question. What can we expect in the future? We will not serve the Lord anymore out of fear of punishment. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, perfect love casts out fear for God is love. We will never serve out of fear of punishment, nor out of hope for rewards either. Although there will be there. We're just serving Him like this prodigal did. He was just happy to be home. He was willing to be like one of the hired men. And here's the last thing. For the first time, we are alive to the relationship of God as a God of love and to enjoying His company. This young man had not enjoyed the company of his father. He couldn't get away from him fast enough. But here we see a picture. I'm close with this illustration. There was a symposium of theologians in Great Britain. 
in the 20th century, and they were pondering the question about Christianity. What is there in Christianity that is unique? They were students of comparative religion, and they were getting stumped. They first raised the question, uh, what about the idea of the Incarnation? Does that make Christianity unique? And as they began to study what they knew and share what they knew about other religions, what they knew was that other religions have reference to incarnation, God's coming and living in human beings, or God's coming to live among human beings. So they said, that doesn't make Christianity unique. And they said, what about the resurrection? And there are stories associated with world religions which talk about the resurrection of certain individuals. About that time, C.S. Lewis came into the conversation. And he asked, what's all the ruckus about? As he listened to them debate. And they told him why they were there, trying to find what is unique about Christianity. And he said, well, that's simple. It's grace, is what he said. It's the unconditional love of God for His people. And they began to think about that, and they said, yes, Buddhism has this eightfold pathway to God. You've got to earn your way to God. In Hinduism, a lot of karma going on, a lot of reincarnation going on, right? You've got to live this life, and then you die, and you go up. Hopefully, you don't go down to the lower level. You make one more step toward reincarnation that will be the last reincarnation, and you are back to the Godhead. Well, what about... Islam. You've got to abide by the code of Islam in order to be right with God. And even Judaism. Judaism. One has to live by the covenant without breaking any of it and hope that they're going to get in. But Christianity is altogether different. For by grace we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the gospel. And this is the meaning of Christmas. Would you bow your head? Perhaps you're a prodigal. You're away from the Lord for whatever reason. And the Lord has spoken to your heart this morning. And He's calling you home. What a wonderful invitation that He would have you here today. Cause you to think about His generosity and His grace to call you home. He's calling you home just to give yourself to the Lord in a fresh way. In the quietness of your heart, would you tell the Lord, Lord, I need to come home. I'm sorry, Lord, for thinking I had it all figured out without any reference to you. I know you've been waiting for this moment and I'm coming home today. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.